Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Jorge Fontanez. Jorge is the CEO of B-Lab US and Canada. He's also the founder of Marca Studio, a consultancy focused on business model innovation and advising founders to build inclusive and sustainable companies. He is a first movers fellow at the Aspen Institute Business and Society Program and a clinical professor of marketing with the Bard MBA in Sustainability Program where he drives thought leadership on the value of stakeholder engagement and equitable inclusion in business. Jorge, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Maybe, you know, before we jump into some of the business-y questions, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. I'm curious, on a human level, how are you doing? Oh, I love this question, Ryan. One of my favorite journalists asks the question of like, what's your temperature check? And Today, I'm feeling optimistic. I'll say there's a lot of optimism around how I get to move about the world. And so I've been traveling a bit, both for work and a little bit of pleasure and have been attending events and conferences in a way that I haven't really had the opportunity to in a few years. And so while we are still amidst a pandemic and dealing with an ongoing public health crisis and a number of things. I'm optimistic that we've demonstrated that we can be resilient and we can find a way to get back to some form of new normal. I'm feeling similarly. I will say just I'm happy that the recent elections were more about like moving on and sort of like returning to sanity as opposed to going deeper into insanity. So just want to put that out there. <laughs> Amen to that. Yes, I am almost glad that that wasn't the first thing that came to my mind. And I am grateful that there's some relief there about knowing that people have expressed their opinion and exercised their vote once again in a really powerful way. And that gives me optimism too. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you first got interested in the work you're doing today? Yeah, thank you for the question. I will answer this question by saying that my personal upbringing is I'm a child of Puerto Rican migrants who left the island in the 40s and 50s and to New York and Philadelphia, two of the cities who to this day have some of the largest Puerto Rican populations, although that's changing because of that colonial relationship the U.S. has had with the island. And, you know, as a kid, I enjoyed the fruits, literally the fruits of Puerto Rico. So, you know, the mangoes, the passion fruit and the guava were some of my favorite things to enjoy when I would visit there during the summers. And my relationship over time with the island has changed because I've grown to become more aware about how it was that my parents got here. And while I don't have all the answers to questions that have come up for me as an adult about what life would have looked like had I grown up on the island, 
that relationship that I have and my roots do ground me not only personally, you know, in terms of who I am, but also in this work now that I'm leading B Lab. So just to double click there, you know, Puerto Rico has this history of what it means to oppress the people, to prioritize capitalism, to uh, support extractive practices that now have led to some real challenges that the island and the people that live there today continue to go through. And now that I'm in the deck, there is a real urgency that's felt, but still a strong connection to the island around what's possible. So there's the history, you know, grounds me in knowing where I've come from. And I can speak to that from a personal way, but also in the historical context. And then looking forward to this work because I'm now sitting in a role that, where we talk about changing the economic system, that feels really big. Puerto Rico is the lens that helps me like make it feel more tangible and like manageable. So in terms of how I got to this work, I've had a number of really interesting experiences in multinational companies, inclusive of extractive businesses. So one of my early companies was working in aluminum and mining and minerals at Alcoa. And then there are other, you know, chapters of my journey in consumer goods and financial services. But I, I focus on Alcoa because they continue to be an example for me of also what's possible for business. Alcoa and its leadership in the early aughts were really committed to this vision 2020, which meant that they were not only changing their own business practices, but really leading an industry to think about what does a world of zero greenhouse gases look like and zero incidents in the workplace and a healthier workforce look like? And I thought, wow, this is an amazing organization who's stepping out in front to change an industry and knowing, and maybe in some cases not knowing, but believing that our business practice could be done in meaningful, impactful ways and still be profitable. And so I was really grateful to have that experience. And that's what took me to business school at NYU. I went and got my MBA and I began to ask these questions about how the marketing discipline, which is what I was most interested in and had spent my career learning about what marketing can do for brands, but then really asking questions about what the role of marketing was in this era of sustainability and continues to inform my work today. That's awesome. And as you were sort of looking at next steps, I'm curious, like, you maybe a lot of people do know what B Lab and the B Corp movement is, but maybe for folks who don't, if you could sort of just briefly, and then why were you particularly drawn to it for your next step? Yeah, so B Lab is the global nonprofit organization that certifies companies on environmental, social and governance standards. So for those that may be less familiar with what that means, think about fair trade for coffee, which some people may know better, and or lead certification for the built environment. So our trademark is B Corp, the B Corp trademark. So the letter B with a circle for those that might be more visual. And that trademark is a signal of companies that are operating with an impact business model 
that are actively working to identify ways in which their business can contribute to a better society for their workers, for the community, for the environment. And so globally, we have over 6,000 proof points of business being a force for good. That's what we say. And I lead US and Canada and also Puerto Rico, which we added to our market, I might add. And I point out my leadership role mainly to say that we're one of six sister organizations around the globe. So we actually operate as an interdependent network and affiliated organizations working with a central organization that develops our standards. So we call that B-Lab Global. And in fact, this week, we were all convening in New York, which is also exciting. So, you know, back to the in-person experiences. And so all of the leads of the regions, we've been coming together to do, you know, really to build connection again after so many years of being on Zoom, but also to invest time in strategy. So that's a little bit about B-Lab. Our B Corps are companies that are demonstrating that business practice can be changed in a way that benefits all people on the planet. And together, we are building what we call a movement within an ecosystem of many other organizations that are working on economic systems change. But this is what drew me into this role, Ryan, is the fact that we're not only a certification body, we're not just a standard. What drew me into B-Lab is knowing that the next chapter of this work is engaging B Corps and businesses like B Corps more deeply in the work of systems change. We use that word system change to talk about policy, you know, changing the rules under which business operates. And so we're in this really exciting chapter of B Lab where B Corps begin to not only demonstrate what's possible within their organizations, but how they can begin to change the narrative about capitalism and also affect policy. I love it. We did have a one call many months ago where this is maybe like a little bit of a, you know, going a little bit off the, the trail, but I have also been excited about B Corps. Uh, many listeners know been involved with the B Corp movement for a while. And I guess I started off with B Corp being the answer to everything. I was like, we just need more B Corps to solve everything in the world. But now it's more like, well, it's obviously more complicated than that. And capitalism itself and how it's not separable from racism and patriarchy and, you know, white supremacy. And I guess, how are you thinking about what's possible within the B Corp movement. And then this sort of like, is just redefining capitalism really enough to like change everything? Or is capitalism itself the problem? And we're doing better with B Corp, so we're not really getting all the way to the root. <laughs> I don't know. How are you sitting with that? It's a tough question, but... It is a tough question. And I think, thanks for posing it actually, because you're right. We are asking ourselves, how many B Corps make a movement? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that may not be the question anymore. You know, in the UK, they're celebrating a thousand B Corps. We're over, you know, 2,500 in US and Canada. As I mentioned, we're 6,000 globally. And one way to answer this question is that to get to the root, business leaders writ large and B Corps in particular who are demonstrating what's possible with business are still 
sitting with some really big questions about the role of capitalism. And I'm one voice, and there will be other voices that say, absolutely, we can't operate within the same structure, and it needs to be completely rewritten. And I could see that. What I also believe is that working within the system can be a mode of effective change, and it's one lever. And we're not the only actor, as I mentioned earlier, right? So we need the activists and we need the agitators around policy. And, you know, we need the public to express the sentiment, which they have increasingly, that while trust in many other sectors, like in media and government, are at all-time lows, we live in a society that continues to hold a lot of trust in business. And I think... You know, underlying that is knowing that we all still benefit from this system. We make money by spending our time in jobs <laughs> that pay us to live the lives that we hope to live and, and want to live. So, so we operate within the system, and I think we need all actors. And so with respect to the specific issues you've raised about, like, operating within capitalism and like how it upholds white supremacy and how it continues to be built on oppressed people, which even today, you know, I think we do need to take a hard look at the business models that are being created today, particularly in the technology sector that are creating value by extracting data and information from us, right? You know, the people economy, <laughs> the attention economy, in particular. So these are good questions. These are complex questions. And I don't, I can't say that we have the answers, but it's important that we try to do things differently. And what continues to make me optimistic is that, you know, I grew up in this world. So I like, I know business. I've worked in multinational companies, as I've mentioned, and I've also been advisor to founders of color and social entrepreneurs. And I understand the other side of the challenges of equitable access to capital, as well as knowledge networks that keep businesses from being able to scale and grow and thrive. And so those experiences collectively give me a unique view of the world and give me, I think, a really interesting perspective that I can bring to B-Lab as an agent of change. We're just one player. So I want to maintain our own kind of humility in this work because there are, you know, again, I've said 6,000 B Corps around the world and in the U.S. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan. What's the number? 20 million plus businesses in the U.S., right? So we are a grain of sand in the ecosystem of capitalism. The last thing I'll say about business is that collectively, we still hold immense resources, in the form of talent and people and money and land and access to water. And many of the things that we want to affect change around are often held by the private sector. And so unless we're engaging the private sector, I feel that it's a real miss to only be working in one segment of the space to affect change. What's getting you most excited within the work you're doing? Is there a particular new project or is there a particular thing that's like happening that you're like really excited about? Yes, I'll continue on this theme of connecting in person. So we're getting close to our 
tradition of B Corps getting together in community. We call it Champions Retreat. It will be my first in this organization. And the last one was in 2019. And so there's uh, a lot of energy within the network of B Lab, but also especially within the B Corp community to be, to be in person. We'll also be offering a virtual component. I'll share more about that. And our theme is humanity at work. And so we're starting off this year's theme asking the question of, that you've already posed, like how do you change capitalism within it? And one of the answers to that question is that we need to embody the change, that we need to begin with truly deeply asking ourselves, how do we treat each other within the organizations that we are navigating? And how do we build three specific areas that we're going to be focused on are, how do we build an economy for all? What does that actually mean that we're creating an equitable economy, knowing that, you know, for many, it's uh, sometimes viewed from a perspective of scarcity, but there isn't enough for everyone. Right. So economy for all is like, yes, it's for everyone, but also like there's enough for everyone. So like, how do we continue to push that narrative? There's also a lot of urgency around climate, as you know, and as many of us experience, because many of our communities are experiencing accelerated climate change and intense weather, whether it be hurricanes or fires or droughts or you know other issues related to climate change. And there's no planet B right? Like this is the chance we think we have to address greenhouse gas emissions in particular, but also how do we do this in a just way? How do we continue to center Black, Indigenous, and people of color, their experiences and their wisdom in the solutions, right? There's two aspects to this work. It's addressing the environmental harms that historically have been burdened and brunt on the shoulders of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And it's also looking forward to a new way of working and co-creating solutions, knowing that, yes, there are immense resources that the private sector holds, and the solutions don't necessarily live within the people who run those companies, that we're at a moment of urgency that requires us to do deep stakeholder engagement. And so I'm really excited to bring this theme to life of humanity at work at Champions Retreat. And I'll just wrap up by saying the other thing I'm excited about for next year is that we are working with cohorts of B Corps in educating them on how to be policy advocates, what it means to bridge the racial equity wealth gap, how did we get here? Um, and then also, you know, forward looking, like how do we co-create solutions around climate? And so there's some really exciting work that's been happening for a while in partnership with the Corporate Racial Equity Alliance. Um, that includes Just Capital and PolicyLink and FSG, along with B-Lab. These are other partners in the ecosystem that are really committed to addressing these questions. And we've already had a couple of resources published. One is the CEO Blueprint for Racial Equity which is available open source. And that is informing, I should say, it's being used as a framework to inform a set of racial equity standards that we're developing. And we're a standards organization. So we're also at a point where we're using these partnerships to inform the next evolution of our standards. And we also have a climate justice playbook that's been out for a while. And we're working on a version two of that playbook. And it is really starting with deepening our relationships with frontline communities 
who understand the impacts of climate and also hold a lot of the sort of opportunities and solutions that they believe that the private sector could invest behind in order to address these pressing challenges. So there's a lot of exciting work of our team. Since I joined, we stood up a new policy and programs team that didn't exist within the organization. And that's really exciting. The perennial challenge for B-Lab is over-opportunitied and under-resourced, right? It's like, there's so many, (laughs) so many things. Yes, there are so many things and so many opportunities. And what I want to say to you and to your audience is that we believe we could do both. And as a standards organization, we're working to connect our core product to these ambitious goals. And so more to come, but that's what we get to do. And, and we're, we're really interested in ensuring that the experience for B Corps is one in which they're learning along the way, but also understanding how what's possible. I just want to double click on the Champions Retreat. I believe that's coming up November 29th. Is that? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So for folks who might be interested, November 29th to December 1st, and it's going to be in Philadelphia. And so folks, historically, the Champions Retreat has been like sort of four B Corps, four certified B Corps. And I'm curious, like if I'm listening and maybe I'm not a B Corp, like what's the sort of like value of a non-B Corp attending the Champions Retreat and why are you encouraging folks to join in? We have high demand right now for certification. It's really interesting, Ryan, right? Because the trends of ESG have meant that there's a lot of attention being placed on our work and the demand for certification is high. And so if you come to Champions Retreat and you're not a B Corp, you'll get to understand what it means for B Corps to collaborate, to come together. So we actually have an entire day focused on our networks and uh, a summit for our B Corp Climate Collective and B Academics, which is a sister organization that works with you know professors and students who actively use our open source tools to advise companies in the process of certification. We have the a BIPOC network that will be convening over time and also our B locals. So this is important to note, you know, we have, I think, 30 B local chapters formed across the U.S. and Canada. And these are self-organized, volunteer-led B Corps coming together in their communities to collaborate. And so I think that for anyone who has curiosity about what it means to be a B Corp, experiencing Champions Retreat will help them understand what's possible. Because often we look at businesses being about competition. And I think B Corps changed the tenor of those conversations because there's a lot of collaboration happening within our community. I also mentioned the themes uh, that we're discussing. So there is an intention to educate our B Corps, but anyone who's interested in the issues of better governance and how the rules need to change under which business operates in order for the system to change. And so um, we'll have some really important conversations with policy advocates and policy experts about what's happening in that space. I mentioned our climate justice work. We'll have frontline community members speaking to us about the work that they're doing within their communities. And then we'll also be, of course, spending time talking about how 
the focus on bridging the racial equity wealth gap can be addressed through case studies and other ways. We'll be bringing to life you know, what B Corps are doing within their own organizations for others to learn from. I'll also give a shout out. The Lyft team is going to be there. We have a session on deepening your impact. So if folks want to learn on, you know, how to go deeper on improving their social and environmental performance, it's another good reason to come. <laughs> it sure is, Ryan. Well, you know, I guess your listeners would know that you co-authored this book or the handbook, the B Corp handbook. So <laughs> if they want to learn from anyone, they should learn from someone like you. So excited that you'll be there and thank you for supporting. Absolutely. You know, you also mentioned new standards and like the evolution of the standards. And could you give folks a sense of like, what has it been up until now? And then like, what's changing? Like what's to look forward to and sort of the why behind that? Yes. I want to say two things about our standard. One is that we are in an open public comment period for anyone who's interested in understanding what this next version would look like, knowing that you have an opportunity to affect how it changes. The truth of our work is that the standards have an opportunity to reflect more about what I say where public sentiment is. Let's pick, choose the issue, right? Net zero commitments or you know, getting to zero greenhouse gases or addressing racial equity, not just diversity, but like truly talking about issues like human rights and fair wages and what it means to earn a living wage. Our standards don't reflect public sentiment in this way. And so our standards have evolved since its inception, but this is probably the biggest transformation of the standards to get to that point. I'm not the expert in standards, and there's a lot of information for, you know, for us to share that is all available for those that have interest. But one of the biggest shifts is that the proposal is to move away from a score to one in which we're saying that B Corps actually stand for something. And then there are 10 areas that include the process of certification, but every B Corp will have met these minimum requirements. And those 10 areas are what we're defining currently. The score is an interesting conversation for those that are, you know, kind of interested in understanding what it means to remove the score. So for those that don't know, you know, a B Corp today, in order to achieve certification, you must achieve a minimum score of 80. Now, you can get that, as you know, Ryan, in many different ways. You can focus on the environment or workers or community investments and philanthropy. The more you do, the higher your score. And so we do have an ethos of continuous improvement in this community. But as I mentioned, the standards always change. And so there's been a focus on the score kind of as a validation that a company is actually improving over time. This is my personal view. Let me just say that. My personal view is that the score is, is a poor reflection of continuous improvement, that what we really should be focusing on is impact. And so the next version of our standards, I think, frames exactly where B Corps are affecting impact. And so I'm excited that, that we're rethinking our core product because it's not easy. You know, I come from what kind of product or service you're offering, right? It's not easy to do a wholesale change of your core product. But because we are a global organization... And because we get to talk to various stakeholders around the world, this process is affirming that it is time to change the standards to ensure that B Corp certification maintains credibility and continues to be the highest standard for companies to achieve. Yeah, and I really 
I think at first was like, oh no, no score, because I think it's just, you know, business people like numbers. But in many ways, like you said, it's not, you know, just for folks, an example would be, I might get, you know, 1.5 points on the assessment currently for having a local purchasing policy, but I also might get the same amount of points or even less points for having like a really generous maternity leave or, you know, parental leave program. And so it's like, well, wait, why is this like local purchasing is cool, but isn't it, you know, this maternity leave or, or parental leave better? And so I've come around to understanding a little bit more about like the impact is the key. And I think it's really important, like, like having a living wage, it, you mentioned that is like it should be a baseline requirement for any company that's going to say they're socially responsible. So I think it's really touching on some things that are really important. Yeah. And I think honestly, like one of the challenges we have is, is really this narrative of like, what does a B Corp stand for? Right. I think. And we say it's business for, you know, it's a force for good. Okay. Well, what does that actually mean? And so, you know, some of the things that we start to boil it down to is that today being a B Corp is about, a legal requirement and a performance requirement, right? So you've got a built into your governance structure that your company can make decisions, your management, your board can make decisions on behalf of all stakeholders, right? Moving away from this, what we believe is true is that shareholders win at the end of the day. And then the second piece is performance requirement, right? So that we use the standards and the continuous improvement to continue to do better, to create more impact. Within the next version of the standards, what's interesting to me also is that there's potentially a collective action requirement, that companies are also doing something outside of their organization to affect change in their communities and potentially on policy issues. And to me, that's really interesting that we combine what it means to be a B Corp, both in terms of governance, in terms of performance. And then also possibly this third requirement that like we're actually working together to change the system. This feels critical to realizing our, our vision. And I'm curious as you're stewarding, you're not personally stewarding, but as the movement is being stewarded by you and others, what are the top two to three things that keep you up at night? Like what are the big hurdles or challenges you're a consultant too, so you may have asked your clients this question, but <laughs> what are the big challenges or hurdles you see coming that need to be addressed in this work? So on what keeps me up at night, Ryan, I want to say one thing. I prioritize rest. <laughs> and so I really do actively have a practice where I'm, I'm ensuring that I am rejuvenating myself. I say that jokingly, but you know, to answer your question, when I wake up, often I'm thinking about the well-being of my team. I just want to pause because, you know, with so much optimism about what's next, you know, there is still a lot that we're trying to process as human beings about the last few years, you know, again, health crisis, economic crisis, political crisis, you know, you name it. It's really layered. Someone asked me recently, you know, how do we simplify our approaches to solving these big problems. And I answer that question by saying, you know, I think we've actually been proven ourselves to be pretty resilient and being able to process more than one thing at one time. So I don't know that we need to simplify. I think it's more about how do we get creative about solving solutions that are really interconnected. And so the well-being of my team keeps me up because we are growing. 
We are in multiple cities across the country, so I don't get to see my team every day. We're often still operating virtually. We're a remote first organization and we have work to do about what it means to operate, not continue to you know, burn out and stress ourselves because this is really good work and it, it's meaningful work. And without our people, we can't advance it. The other thing that keeps me up at night is resources. So we are a nonprofit. And while we are in a fairly healthy position, I would say, in terms of a growing community and demand for certification, we need the generosity of funders to fuel and accelerate this work. The third is to say that the culture that we are doing this work within, I'm not sure if the culture is the right word, there's some work that we need to do around narrative building in support of environmental social governance standards. Now, the antithesis of that is like what some might say is woke capitalism or anti-ESG. And I'm hungry for new language, right? <laughs> but this keeps me up at night because we are truth tellers and we need to be better storytellers about how business practice and advocacy can actually be one and the same. And that we live day in and day out, you know, I think truly the average worker, the average CEO, the average policymaker is working in the self-interest of their constituency. And that's either their family or their community, you know, their voters. And somehow the majority of us who are generally working in this way aren't cohesive in our narrative and the way we talk about this work. And so I'm really interested in both getting to a point where we're using language to unite us rather than divide us and moving beyond commitments as well because action matters too. Yeah, I definitely resonate with the the language and Professor John A. Powell at UC Berkeley uses bridging versus breaking language. And I will admit that a lot of my positioning and language, maybe prior to COVID and even during COVID, has been very like, if you don't get it, like, I don't want to talk to you. Like, where's my community who gets it? But then I was all, I've sort of come around to being like, it's not going to work to just like write off large swaths of people as like never going to get it. And it's actually like much harder to actually include and like make bridging or those types of connections than it is to just be like they're idiots or like they'll never get it. And so I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> yeah, I love this frame of bridging versus breaking. And yes, I think that we owe it to ourselves to have more faith in each other, <laughs> knowing that we're all trying to do our best. You, know, you mentioned funders as one of the challenges. It's got to be odd. <laughs> you know, it's like perennial challenge of B-Lab and many nonprofits. It's like, I'm not sure what percentage of your funding comes from philanthropy versus other sources versus like the earned revenue on the certification. But it's like working off of the excesses usually that people have accumulated from exploitation you know, like the big families like Rockefeller, et cetera, et cetera, who have basically like 
and then they're like funding this. But I guess it's like the system we're in, right? This is part of like, how do you change the system when you're part of the system conversation? Yes. Well, I didn't hear a question in your yeah. comment opinion, what you just said, <laughs> what Ryan. Do you think? I'm, I'm happy, to, <laughs> happy to take a jump off point here because I want to answer your question by saying that what we get to do is actually change our relationship to money. So I'm going to invoke Edgar Villanueva here because, you know, author of Decolonizing Wealth and something that sticks with me still today about something he says about in his book is it's not money that is the root of our problems. It's the love of money right? It's the greed. It's a relationship to money. And to me, that absolutely helps reframe this conversation because with respect to philanthropy, I did actually walk into this organization thinking, I'm not sure who I would accept money from. And then when you start to really think about it, Ryan, there aren't a lot of options when you start to impose a lot of criteria. I think what might be important as much as understanding where money comes from and whether it was built in an exploitative and extractive way or created in that way is how it gets allocated. Who gets to decide where the money goes and how it's invested? And I think this is where philanthropy has a real opportunity is to think of through its models, right? We hear today a lot of interest in trust-based philanthropy so, you know, there are many others doing this work, you know, better than, than I am and more deeply have more expertise in this space. But I think those are the kinds of models that we're asking funders to embrace, particularly for nonprofits that are led by leaders of color, because I was looking at the statistics recently, I think it's somewhere around less than 10% of nonprofits are led by a person of color. And when you look at funding, the proportion of funding that's going to leaders of color, it's also quite low. So like, why is that, right? And then when it comes to the relationships that partners have with grantees, you know, no matter who's leading, but, you know, if we believe in the mission, shouldn't we have, you know, different approaches to, you know, what it means to report and to apply for funding and, I think the relationship between funders and grantees needs to change in order for the system to change as well. And there's an opportunity for philanthropists to think differently. Absolutely. And act differently. And I love Edgar's book and framing around like you don't recreate colonial dynamics with philanthropy where you're demanding. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's another book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the most like one of the more even more progressive you know kind of reference books that i've picked up but within it is there's a lot of wisdom about how to bring in decision makers from the community to inform and guide where funding should go right that we need to move away from this top-down power dynamic where the program manager decides but in fact we begin to shift power to the communities who are most effective you know, I'd like to ask, I'm curious, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Interesting question, Ryan. You know, I reflect on this now that you're asking this question. And what comes up for me is that when I find myself speaking in front of larger audiences about a topic like shifting power, as I just pointed to, the conversations that follow 
sound something like great job or oh i really like what you said and i appreciate that i appreciate the kudos what i wish people asked me is why do you think that or how did you come to this conclusion or but like ask me a question it's more like ask me a question <laughs> rather than give me a kudos it's i actually wish that people asked me more questions because i don't have all the answers <laughs> and in order for us to process this these challenges and get to good solutions frankly i want to be challenged i want to be questioned and i think that i'm saying that because it's not until we're in dialogue about these issues that we can reach true understanding even for myself and so yeah i hope that answers your question it does it's great usually when i ask that question then i ask the person the question that they wished people answered <laughs> <laughs> Why do you believe in shifting power? But I feel like that could be its own podcast, right? I can answer that briefly. I'll answer that because we're on an anti-racism journey as well as an organization at B-Lab. And so when I talk about shifting power, it's actually one of our three principles with respect to our justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion strategy globally. And power equity is a lever of change that helps us walk forward and live into our commitments of anti-racism where power sits matters and so while i am simultaneously getting used to my role as ceo of blab us and canada i am also learning how to let it go and so this is the hard work this is why it's important because i want other leaders like me to jump into action because i think we're in a period right now where business leaders are being looked to to act some critical decisions <laughs> that are seemingly simple are actually quite hard to do and i think this is the first step for a lot of business leaders is to begin to make commitments and rethink their decision making and who gets to decide within their organization is a part of what it means to be anti-racist and if you're not doing it within your own organization it's going to be even more challenging to affect that change outside a couple more questions and then i want to make sure i'm not taking up too much of your time um what do you need right now and then how can the listeners help you grow this next economy movement or this movement you're helping build thanks for the question Ryan i'll go back to the opportunity about building the narrative and building what i'm calling is like an offense in support of ESG i clearly haven't landed on the language yet although someone last night did share with me a perspective of you know a, a common unifying frame is you know talking about people and places like we all care about people we all care about places that are important to us and so that relates to you know how we treat people fairly equitably and how we treat the land in a regenerative way fairly equitably so we need help here we need not just good language i want to say we need more leaders stepping up and out in support of business as a force for good 
So I'm definitely going to be making a plea to our B Corps in this way at Champions Retreat and beyond going into 2023. And it, it means more of us taking demonstrable action and going beyond commitments. This work can feel really lonely, you know, in a leadership role. And my commitment to our community, and I offer this invitation to all business leaders who may be listening, that we don't have to do it alone, that we can actually also come together to support each other. And I think that's what I need is I need more leaders raising their hands and asking the question, asking the hard question, how do I do this? And uh, I think the more that we get leaders asking that question and raising their hands, the more quickly this work can accelerate. And you've mentioned a few things like the the champions retreat and also maybe the standards public comment. Where can folks go to find more information on that? Yes. So our website, wearebcorps.com, gets you into all the things uh, related to champions retreat standards, our theory of change, some of the resources I mentioned as well, including the CEO blueprint for racial equity, the climate justice playbook. We also have a white paper on stakeholder governance, all the things on our newly launched website, wearebcorps.com. And if you want to go even further, we have a entire publishing website called Be the Change. So the letter B, thechange.com, where you can see all the archives of many stories that have been published over the years about how B Corps are doing what they do, and also go deeper into providing case studies, examples, and points to other resources. Oh, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at B Corp USK. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to to finally meet you in person in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and um, absolutely, yeah. Ryan. And I do recall our brief discussion the last time I remember. So I'm, I'm glad we left some of the questions that you had here today for this conversation. So thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks again. And we'll be in touch. Look forward to it, Ryan. See you at Champions Retreat. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.